Support for the following podcast comes from the free event Church Mental Health Summit. Over 50 speakers from around the world are coming together to equip the local church to support mental health in their churches and communities. To register for free, go to churchmentalhealthsummit.com. You know, we asked that question earlier about, you know, the ministry leaders that are struggling. At times, the Aaron's and hers, the supporters of clergy, they too are struggling. And within this very disparate network, the silos that you were talking about before, we get the, the sense of loneliness and isolation that only further perpetuates some of the underlying causes and problems that that we're trying to treat to begin with. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools and strategies, resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and on the show today, we're going to be talking about caring for clergy with Reverend Dr. Thad Austin, because asking for help is really, really hard. As leaders, it's hard to admit when we're stuck or when we don't have all the solutions or answers or we need support. And the same goes for helpers or caregivers. I can tell you that when I experienced burnout and I sat across from a therapist, I'm going to be honest, I hated every minute. I know I should be telling you that I loved it and I looked forward to it. But truthfully, I was super annoyed. I was annoyed at his soft voice, his concerning head nod, and the homework that I had just a few weeks ago had given to one of my clients. But in all of that annoyance, I'm going to be honest, it actually helped. As much as I didn't enjoy it, the therapy helped and it overcame a lot of things that were becoming roadblocks in my life. I had heard several times prior to going to that counselor that the difference between a good therapist and a great therapist is that the great one, they go to therapy themselves. But up until then, I wasn't able to set aside my pride and seek help. But counselors, therapists, clergy, and pastors, they're people too. We all have had experiences or relationships that are complex and can trip us up. We're human. And despite being supporters for others, ministry leaders need support too. And this is what Reverend Dr. Thad Austin's research focuses on at Duke Divinity University. There are many articles and research studies identifying that clergy are struggling. And I know I hear this in my conversations with churches across North America. Yet those who support clergy, people like educators, clinicians, or denominations, they're incredibly siloed. This makes for a very fractured system that is very difficult to navigate and hard to access. But what if it wasn't? What if there was a network of those who support clergy? What, or what if supporters were able to collaborate and share information and share tools and resources and even care for one another? Imagine that. And this is the work that motivates Reverend Dr. Thad Austin. Thad grew up in North Carolina to Christian parents who worked in the medical field. His father was an internist and his mother was a nurse practitioner. Even his grandfather was a physician and served in the Navy. So the value of serving God and serving others was rooted in just about every aspect of his upbringing. 
Thad describes himself as an introvert who loves to be around people, which is probably a side effect of being an only child. Traveling the country with his parents while they served others, Thad reflects on one of the most impactful memories he has with his father. So after I finished my first semester of seminary, I I went with my dad uh, and we hiked uh, half of the Appalachian Trail together. So we walked from the state of Pennsylvania down to the state of Georgia, 1,100 miles. Wow. And and it was the most formational experience uh, to just kind of do that together my mom obviously is just a just a saint for uh, <laughs> for allowing us to to do that as well that's amazing i love it you mentioned that you were a pastor what drew you to pastoral because your family was in, a significant amount of your family was in healthcare mm-hmm. and so that draw to pastoral or clergy ministry what drew you to that field yeah so when i was 16 years old uh, we had a there were a number of folks that um, came up to me and uh, who were encouraging me to either consider or in a prophetic way <laughs> were, were saying, you know, you need to be a pastor or God's calling you to be a pastor. And it got, I honestly, I got a little tired of it because I was just thinking, you know, look, if, if God wanted to call me into the ministry, God can do that. So, you know, why Step do I off. need you? Right. Yeah. Why do I need you to tell me the will of God for my life? Oh my gosh. Um, true teenager. There it is. You're an old soul, but there's uh, the true teenager in you. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So I remember very distinctly, it was a, a Friday night and uh, our church, uh, you know, in the, in the nineties was um, experimenting with this thing called contemporary worship. And so they, they had this thing called the first Friday filling and it was held in the gymnasium of our our church, um, and just picture a lot of ferns. That's that's the best. The '90s and ferns go together quite well. Yeah, they just very well. Yeah. So so anyway, I was I was sitting there, and I mean, it tells you a little bit about me as a 16 year old in the nineties and I'm at church on a Friday night, (laughs) but, but so I was there. And as the, uh, as our pastor got up to preach, I just really felt like God was saying Thad, you need to go and you need to, you need to talk with your pastor. And I kind of knew that it was about these nudgings that I was getting from other people. So set up a time with him. I never will forget because I just got my driver's license. I pulled up to the the church office. And I remember I gripped the steering wheel as tightly as I could so tightly that my, I could see like the whites of my knuckles. And I just prayed and I said, God, I just asked that you would direct this conversation that I'm about to have. And that you would, uh, that you would let my pastor know what we need to talk about before I ever into the room. I pray that my pastor would begin the conversation so that I would not have to. And then so I said, amen. And then I grabbed the four by six index card that was was on the passenger seat that had all the questions on it. That was my insurance (laughs) policy, just in case God didn't show up. Like, I just wanted to make sure that like, it wasn't like the awkward silence of, you know, so I grabbed the four by six index card, walked in and uh, he called me into his office and he was walking around to his side of the desk he said he said sit down thad oh my god tell me about your call to the ministry and i remember i literally I, like as i was sitting in that chair i i like backed up i physically backed up and i thought 
well, here's another one of these jokers that wants to tell me the will of God for my life. And then I paused and I remembered that prayer that I just prayed where I'd ask God that my pastor would begin this conversation, that my pastor would know what we needed to talk about. And so I physically, I physically relaxed. And I think that there was something in my spirit that relaxed at that time as well. And I said, okay, let's talk about that. And so anyway, we had a great conversation. And I remember right after it was done, he took me over to the sanctuary and he took some of the baptismal water that was, uh, that was there. And he kind of scooped it up with his hands and he made the sign of a cross on my forehead. And ever since it's the biggest questions of my life have been, what does it mean to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And what does it mean to serve the church and those who are part of the church as, as well? Their leaders, their, their members, um, you know, what does it mean to be the body of Christ? So I'm assuming you're 16 years old, you went to college, went to seminary, um, and then began pastoring. Uh, is that correct? You went through as a pastor. How, tell me about your experience as a pastor. Uh, I've, I've had great experiences in pastoral ministry. I have served in just about every role uh, that you can, like as a, as a children's director, as a youth pastor, as uh, an associate. So yeah, I mean, like just a full gamut of like, I've taken the senior adults on trips. Um, <laughs> like if that tells you that, like, the, you know, like the, the, the range. Um, and I, you know, I, I firmly believe that the, that the, ch the local church, local expressions of the community of faith, uh, what the, the early new Testament believers would, would call an ecclesia or a koinonia, that this is the heartbeat of, you know, of, of, of who we are. Um, and it, it's, it's incredibly important, the work that happens within local congregations. Um, you know, I, I really lament in some ways the dislocation of believers from worshiping communities over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's a, a chapter in a book that I wrote that uh, it was released during the pandemic. And this is one of the things that I said in it. I, I just said, you know, if, if, if we ever begin to think that we're better off apart six feet from our neighbor, if, we, if we're better, you know, with plexiglass separating us, that, that th those measures are incredibly important for a public health standpoint. But if they begin to be incorporated into um, a, a body, there, there's just increased dislocation. And I think we've seen that in some ways, um, you know, with the strain of that, that many clergy feel like they're under. Um, and also, uh, I think, at least in the United States, there's a number of congregations that their worship attendance, I mean, it's they're struggling to bring folks back in person. You know, maybe their online presence has grown, but but they're in person. It's it's really struggling. And so and so I think that's one of the big questions. You know, what does it mean to be the body of Christ? It's the question that every generation has had to ask. And in particular for us now, it's what does it mean to be the body of Christ, even in a virtual context? And 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 then how do we create or even recreate a sense of community and belonging and thinking about things such as incarnation, 
and place as being important anchor points for um, for the church. You know, th- these are the these are the, some of the biggest questions that that we face right now in our time. I'm not a theologian, and I don't pretend to be, but I've always had this interest in what the local church means and what it was throughout history. And, you know, if you look and this just might be, you know, this is not research based, this is personal observation, that the churches are often the center of the community physically and spatially wise, the the churches are in the center of the community and the community is built around that. And that picture of what community and what the church meant to that community there was a place of of gathering it was a place of support it was a place of hope it was a place of safety refuge and encouragement and like you said belonging like that really is my heart and passion for the for the church to be able to maintain or return or become that in the local communities across you know, I'm from Canada, you're from the US, we have listeners around the world from across the communities of where you're located. And that um, we can return to that or become known for that, that our reputation is, is that of safety, of belonging, of trust, of hope. And yeah, I love that picture. Sometimes I pretend to be a theologian. Uh, I don't I don't know that I am much, <laughs> much of one, but I, but I have known a number of folks who uh, certainly are. And, um, you know, I think about one of my colleagues at uh, Duke Divinity School, Kevin Rowe, who recently, he, he wrote a book, uh, it's entitled Christianity Surprise. And in it, the basic premise is asking this question, how does this backwoods religion become the predominant feature of the Roman Empire in just a matter of years. And part of the answer that that he argues within it is that Christianity was surprising. You know, these concepts that you're talking about in terms of hospitality, of belonging, of, you know, meaning and purpose and something greater, these were all part of the DNA of of the early church. And, and, And in many ways, we are in a situation where the 21st century church, whether or not we realize it, is much more like the first century church than maybe the 19th or the 17th century church. And so, you know, reclaiming that sense of surprise uh, is part of who we should be as people of faith. I love that, that sense of surprise. That's cool. That's cool. In your experience as a pastor, were there moments where you felt overwhelmed or defeated or or struggle in any way? Um, not to put you on the spot or anything, but I think there's people who are listening who are are facing those challenges that you mentioned, struggling to build that community network and struggling to do different things. And 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 I don't think that is all just because of uh, of the pandemic. I think that is cultural and societal norms as they shift and and change that that they're trying to figure out or crack the code on how they can become surprising and 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 relevant and impactful in their community um and they might be listening on a day where they're feeling heavy um can you share a little bit about what your experiences were i'd say that for anyone who's listening that feels like they're in one of those dry valleys or lonely places you are you are not alone um 
ministry is oftentimes, uh, I'd say, kind of a dissociative kind of vocation where you go from maybe a birthday party to the bedside of someone who's dying uh, to a contentious board meeting with political factions and things that, you know, where people are arguing over the, the color of the carpet or, you know, it just you, you kind of come in and out of these different kind of settings, which certainly make the, the work very interesting. <laughs> but <laughs> at times at times you feel like you have you know, whiplash. You like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, did I sign up for mm. this? Like, is this really the heart of what ministry is? And in some sense, it is. You know, like I think about the the ministry of Jesus and, you know, these kind of knucklehead disciples who oftentimes don't get it and are asking really obvious questions. And it's like, I just, I just told you, like, like, didn't you just hear the, like, do we need to go through this again? Like, I almost, like, I really, I, I think, you know, if you're in pastoral ministry, you really kind of empathize, you relate with the ministry of Jesus because, because they're, you know, he, he's handling the, the same, very same situations coming in and out. And so I, I, one of the things that has been so meaningful and impactful for me, especially in those dry seasons, is to, to remember to care for your own soul. It's, it's almost like, you know, when you're on the airplane and they say, you know, place the oxygen mask over your mouth before helping others how important that is. So one of my great mentors um, is named J. Ellsworth Callas and phenomenal preacher, incredible leader of, of the church. And one of the things that he said to me was, um, he said, beware of serving the bread of life with emaciated hands. And I think that there's many church leaders for whom that would apply, that that they're seeking to offer something of this life abundant, but they're doing it from a place, from a well that's just dry and parched. And so I want to say to the folks that, that may be listening, you feel like they're in one of those situations, that you're, you're not alone, that there is help and support that's available to you, but there is a certain element of personal responsibility that no one else, no one else can fully support or care for, for your own. So, like you have to take some steps and it's to maybe say no, even when it's uncomfortable to create some boundaries. You know, these are part of, of, of what it means to, to be not just in ministry for the short term, but to be in ministry for, for the long haul. And this line of work and passion has brought you now fast forward after pastoring brought you um, to Duke University uh, and you're working in a clergy care and a clergy well-being um, project. Am I saying that right? I don't even know. <laughs> Yeah, is it absolutely. is it is it a is, is I was it a program through Duke University or is it a a school or what? <laughs> I'm sorry, no, that's, I should know totally this. Good. I'm like. Totally uh... <laughs> Uh, I, th I think the way that you phrased it is okay. exactly right. Yeah. All right. So fast forwarding, this brought you to the work that you're doing now within uh, Duke University. Shara, tell us about, can you share a little bit about what that is? Because I think this really aligns with this conversation. 
Uh, so I'd be very happy to do that, Laura. The, the things that motivate and inspire me are formational, mission-driven institutions. The leaders who animate those institutions and the resources that 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 drive their mission. And so there have been some basic questions that have been on my mind for a number of years. In particular, I've seen evidence that the cracks that we are observing within the institutional church are having a dramatic impact, not just on organizational structures, but upon real people. And in particular, leaders. I cannot tell you the number of individuals, friends, people who are in my ordination class who have said, I give up. I'm done. I, I'm, I'm going to go do something else. Uh, even during the pandemic, I remember, and this is probably, there's, you know, th this is all, all the evidence that we would need. I remember I got a targeted Facebook ad for an executive coaching firm for secular business leaders. And they've identified that pastors make really good executive coaches. And so the Facebook ad said, are you tired of ministry? Consider working with us. Wow. You can use your skills in a different context. And I was just like, this, you mean there's a market for this? Like, you know, so the, the empirical evidence that we're finding is that if you were okay prior to the pandemic, you're okay now. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit worse. But if you were on the fence or you were struggling as a ministry leader prior to the pandemic, then you are in a, a even worse spot. And so what I'm saying is that the, 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 the cracks that are evident within these institutional structures that create pressure related to financial resources or um, workload or a whole variety of things have impact on real people. So one of the things that, that me and my team wanted to understand better were what was supporting these ministry leaders. The way we've talked about it is trying to think about using the biblical example of Moses, Aaron, and Her. So we've been asking the question, who are Aaron and Her today? Those that would lift up and support the arms of Moses or the, the pastor in this kind of situation. Or maybe to use a different biblical analogy, who is Ruth to Naomi? Or who is Martha to Jesus and his disciples? Like, who are these people? today and what are they doing where are they located how how are they collaborating or are like are they talking to each other if they are talking to each other are they even speaking the same language are they speaking differently are they, are they are they both on one arm supporting only one area while this other arm is is really really struggling are they far and spread out so so we have conducted what is the first and most comprehensive analysis of clergy care providers that that it, that has existed, we we know that we've likely missed 
a number of uh, individuals, organizations, institutions, and especially those at the local level. So one of the things I want to make sure you hear me say is that the most impactful support that a clergy person will ever receive is at the local level. I remember when I was serving in pastoral ministry, there was a a family that met me with a moving truck, helped me move into the parsonage. And it, you know, that family did more for me in the first six months of my ministry than, than anybody else. But what we have been trying to understand are the large scale systemic organizational structures, whether it be denominational officials, networks, association, pension, benefit, insurance providers, funders, continuing education officials, frontline providers like spiritual directors, marriage and family therapists, retreat center providers, just a whole wide variety that don't just work with one clergy person, but work with many different clergy. And so we've conducted this large scale study to to map out this network. And what we found, unfortunately, is that it is incredibly disconnected. Very much so. I <laughs> I can attest to that, trying to connect and network and build relationships and learn. It is, we often, I feel like it's very siloed. And for a number of reasons. Yes. Um, there's not a cause and effect or there's not a uh, intentionality to that. It just, it's just happening. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, yes, I would say that it's happening for all the normal reasons of, well, I just don't have time or I'm so busy or, you know, just this lack of intentionality. And then it's also happening because of theological differences. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, the, the question of who, with whom can I work or partner? Like there's a theological kind of calculation that sometimes is is part of that. But during the course of our research, and I kid you not, we identified this one denominational official whose entire full-time 50, 60 hours a week job is to help support clergy in all of the facets. They've been doing deep kind of understanding and research and developing innovative programs. And we then identified another individual from another denomination who was doing the exact same thing. And these two people were literally 20 minute drive apart and they had never met each other. They had never known about each other's work. And so, you know, when I, when, you know, we asked the question earlier about, you know, the, the ministry leaders that are struggling at times, the Aaron's and hers, the supporters of clergy, they too are struggling. And within this very disparate network, the silos that you were talking about before, we get these the, the, the sense of loneliness and isolation that only further perpetuates some of the underlying causes and problems that, that we're trying to treat to begin with. So, so through the, the, the book that we've just released uh, entitled Caring for Clergy, understand Understanding a disconnected network of providers, we not only assess the situation, but we try to paint a vision towards hope of saying that there is and there could be a better way, that the body of Christ, when properly connected, supporting it, has the right resources, it has the right infrastructure. You know, we, we did a comprehensive analysis in the United States to understand all of the funding 
especially through foundations that was you know available for hundreds of millions of dollars are being poured into clergy but but there's very little coordination that's taking place it's 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 like efforts are being diluted because because they're they're headed in so many different directions so just with a, a first and foremost you know a, a greater sense of awareness about who's out there and what what's happening but then also even if it was just a slight coordination among these different parties it could have a dramatic impact for the church that's incredible so when you when i'm listening to you i'm thinking you know this is very cool research very interesting very academic and how does this filter out or how does this become usable or how does this impact the people who are on the front lines like it seems like from our conversation there's a disconnect can you build and connect these thoughts like how would this impact the pastor who's running a small church in a community in the midwest for example (laughs) yeah uh, so great question Let, let me start from a very theoretical place and then i'll move to a very grounded Uh, kind of uh, understanding. So from just even a theoretical lens, we did, we did this comprehensive uh, study, a literature review of all the academic research that has been published on clergy, clergy well-being, whole variety of different, you know, topics, you know, like what are the questions that are being asked? How are they being asked? By whom? All these kind of things. And then through the course of our research, we asked a a basic question of all those that we surveyed across North America, which was you are providing some type of support to clergy. What are the resources you draw on in your work? So, so give us the titles, help us to know, like, what's the really good stuff that, you know, is impacting you, the ideas between those two, we came up with more than 500 unique titles. Wow. Titles of Only resources or titles of position? Titles of resources, books, articles, right. okay, yeah. blogs, all, you know, you get right. the idea. 500. Wow. There were only three that overlapped between no. the academic and the practitioner. So there's some great research that's happening, and yet it's having no direct or immediate impact on the people who are responsible for providing the services. I mean, it would be like the, the, uh, the medical schools who are doing, you know, great research on cancer or something like that, never interacting with your oncologist. And so I know that that's, that's, that's a very theoretical lens to begin with, but I, what I, what I want to say is that it paints a picture of how disconnected this these conversations are we even did we did a word cloud Mm -hmm. for the academic articles and then we did a word cloud that was representative of the abstracts and summaries of all of these other resources that practitioners are drawing on they have very little in common wow and so so for the person who is on the ground who is in a local setting that is in the midwest as as you said (laughs) Um, that serving in pastoral ministry, I want to ask you a very basic question. And that is who is supporting your ministry? 
Mm-hmm. And I mean that both from the local standpoint. So who are the the lay leaders, or maybe there's a, a clergy group within your community. Who are the who are the local people that that are really helping to uplift your spirits? But then, what are the other structures that? that are in place, either maybe from a denomination or maybe a non-denominational context, an association kind of setting? What are the the retreat centers or spiritual directors that are part? Like, and what I want you to do is I want you to start evaluating how Aaron and her either are or are not qualified to provide the support that they're doing. One of the very, very unique aspects of the church is that you can basically put out a shingle and call yourself a coach. <laughs> yeah, and you have no. <laughs> That's background. so frustrating for clinicians. <laughs> you have no background. Nothing. You have no business offering. You know, but it's well. And 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 so we ask this. You know, we ask this question about like training and formation within the context of um, these errands and hers that are out there. said that they had both formal and informal training to provide whatever service it is that they, that they offer 27%. So just a little less than a third had only informal training and 10%. So get this one in 10 said, I have neither. Oh, okay. So So that's, you know, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you know, the, the people like this is one of the reasons why <laughs> maybe the church is in the condition it's in. It's not the only reason, but but who is supporting your ministry? And that's really we, interesting because if one in ten are having some sort of thriving or f- business or there's a market for that, then clearly those who with informal, formal, or credentialed, or whatever training aren't access, aren't accessible, or people are struggling to find and access support. So they're willing to connect and find support from someone who has no zero training. Yes, Interesting. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Well, and we, so in the empirical work that, that we did, we, we tried to understand and identify. So what is the common characteristic that is connecting all of these different providers, Mm. the single most important, I mean this not only from just an anecdotal, but even a statistical standpoint, the single most important factor influencing everything else that happens in this field is previous pastoral experience. So if you are an Aaron or a her, we found that 70% of those individuals had previous pastoral experience. But that begs the question, what was that previous pastoral experience like? So I was talking with this gentleman who, he lives uh, in the Southeastern United States and he's worked with clergy for more than 27 years. And so we were doing kind of a focus group interview with him and really trying to understand some of the things we were seeing in the data. And then at the very end of our conversation, we just asked him, you know, anything else you'd like to share with us? And here's what he said. He said, I've been doing this work for almost three decades. And he said, in my experience, there's a lot of people who are working with clergy and they're ministering not out of their healing, 
but instead out of their woundedness. He said they got burned by the local church. And they, in many cases, have not done the work to heal from their own past. And he said it kind of creates the cyclical effect where it's almost like you've got a person who comes for help with a broken arm and is being treated by a physician with two broken arms. And he said, like, we, we wonder why the, we wonder why the, the bone doesn't set right. And so the, the question that I would ask of, of, of clergy is who is supporting your ministry? And not only am I asking to name, like, th there should be people supporting your ministry, but to understand what's their background, upon what, uh, upon what certification or qualification are they offering their care? Because the problem is that in many cases, people are just kind of making it up, and there is no other profession that would tolerate this. I mean, you know, it, it, and I just mentioned this really quickly, but this is not unusual for helping professions. So it might be that that a counselor or a psychologist gets involved in the work because they went through a traumatic experience and they saw the help that they received. But the difference is within those contexts, there's a requirement for continuing education. There's a requirement mm, for, yes, accountability or, or even that you must go through therapy before you offer therapy to someone else. So, so who is it that's supporting your ministry? And, and, and the only way, the only way that I can imagine that the, the church is going to make any difference here is if the clergy themselves start saying, I, I expect I, you know, like I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm going to someone that, that is qualified to offer the support that I need. And your book that you offer, I want to make sure people know what this resource is, how to access it, and what are the key points for it. So your book reviews this research. What kind of tools or resources do you offer in that? Yeah, so the, the book is called Caring for clergy, understanding a disconnected network of providers. You can find it on Amazon or any of the major book retailers. Um, you can also find it at caringforclergybook.com. And in it, we, we review uh, some of you know, these basic elements. So um, who cares for clergy? Uh, how do we think about, even from a historical uh, standpoint, what's been the history of clergy care that has gotten us to this place. If this is a very ancient profession that that since the earliest days of the Judeo-Christian heritage, the Levites and the priest had mechanisms in place to support them in in their work. And so, you know, we're asking then what is the modern day understanding or expression of of that? Uh, we look at the making of, of clergy care providers. So what are the formational experiences that, that clergy care providers are, are working on? Um, we look at the literature that is out there. And I mean, the, the title of the chapter is we aren't reading the same things. <laughs> and that's, you know, thinking about like the academics having, you know, a conversation and then the, 
the practitioners are having a very different and distinct conversation. We've got another chapter that is called, we aren't speaking the same language. So even the terminology that is used creates, like for instance, what do we mean by clergy well-being? For some, that might mean mental and physical health. For others, it's really about financial health. For others, you know, it's something totally different. And so there are these disconnects that, that take place. Then we examine, well, what is actually being offered? What, is, what are these providers you know, giving? And then the next chapter looks at the money that is funneling and resourcing this, this movement in great ways and in some gaps uh, geographically or uh, even in other contexts. Um, just as an example, we find that for many organizations, they invest less than 25% of their budget in specific programs, resources, or services that that offer care for clergy. And so clergy is one of the things that these organizations do, but it's not the exclusive. And so, you know, understanding that really makes a, a big difference. And then finally, we ask the question about what's getting in the way. So what are the barriers that 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 we've identified, some of the major barriers? Um, I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. And this is not the only barrier we talk about, but sometimes clergy themselves are a barrier. And it's for the reason that we talked about earlier, because you're unwilling to admit that you need help. So w this is why I say, you know, if you're feeling alone, you are not alone. There's a support network out there, but, but sometimes it, it is a very healing piece within the context of a congregation to be able to, like Jesus, show your congregation your wounds and your scars. That is vulnerability at, at its height. It, it, it feels dangerous, and yet it might just invite other people in your congregation to be able to say, I'm in need of help too. So the church then provides this. The, the conclusion of the book, we talk about, then this is kind of what we hope is the payoff, is, is how could we imagine this group of providers getting in greater sync with one another? And if so, what would the implications of that be? So I'll just mention this. So we surveyed more than 700 clergy care providers, primarily in the United States, but then all across Canada as well. And we asked those clergy care providers on a typical year pre-COVID, because COVID might have increased or decreased the number of clergy that they were interacting with, how many clergy do you serve? And the total number, if you add up all of their responses, was more than 222,000 clergy. Now, let's just assume, for argument's sake, that from a very conservative standpoint, let's say that maybe there's a 50% overlap. You know, maybe this one clergy person is served by multiple organizations. So like very conservatively, let's say that the number is really 111,000 clergy. You think about that. So what we know from the National Congregation Study and the National Study of Religious Leaders, even the U.S. Census, this number of 111,000 clergy 
might represent approximately 60%. I was going to say, that's not a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. 60% of the, of the cler- Protestant clergy in the United States and, you know, parts of Canada. And so you think about that, that 111,000 clergy that have an impact in a congregation that then has an impact in a community. If we were able to better support these religious leaders, if we were able to share ideas or frustrations or better understand what the needs were, if we could more strategically target like how philanthropic funding was 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 used or even if if we were able to just say like here's something that's going extraordinarily well here's an innovation or here's something that failed miserably and we never ever ever need to do it again if we were just able among those care providers to offer that the impact the ripple effect is societal and so that is the the vision of of this book is if we can just get a little bit more conversation among these different care providers if Aaron could be introduced to her Moses might benefit and if Moses benefits then the war that is raging the battle that Joshua is leading in uh on on the, in the field there in the, in the Judean desert that it has a different outcome. Um, we think that that's possible. And we actually think that it's a reflection of the body of Christ at, at its finest, at its best. So, so that's, that's the invitation for this. We want you to begin to imagine what would it be like if clergy had the support that they needed to thrive? What would that look like? And we think that one of the answers is, is found here in the context of our book, Caring for Clergy. If there are clergy or um, caregivers wanting to connect with you or be a part of that survey or part of that research, how can they connect with you? We would we would love to connect with you and uh, I would invite you to go to caringforclergybook.com and uh, there's uh, a few different links, not only where you can engage with the research, so you can download the first chapter for free. This has been, you know, we, we want to try to give away as much of this uh, as possible, but you can also, you can purchase the book and um, my contact information along with uh, my co-author, Dr. Katie Camo, uh, all of that is there as well. And we, we would, we would be delighted to connect with you and awesome. to find out how we can support you and your important ministry, because you're doing the work that um, brings and makes evident the kingdom of God in this world. I love it. Thinking back to when you first began, whether it was on the hike with your dad or in the office with your pastor, feeling that first call, if you could now write yourself a letter or send yourself a voice memo about to your younger self, what would you say? I I think I would say, like my mentor said, that don't serve the bread of life with emaciated hands. Um, that's that's disingenuous to the gospel. Um, Jesus took time apart. He stopped. He rested. Even you know, in the story of creation, God stops. Like the implications of God stopping. 
I, I think I, I would I would have a more robust understanding of really of of Sabbath practice of the of the faith that is required to stop and allow God to kind of work or others to, to take on responsibility. And then also the beauty of the body of Christ, that, that there is support, that there are folks out there that just want to love on you and they want to bless you and they're called to do it. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and that research. And I look forward to connecting more and being a part of the conversation of bringing everything together. Thanks so much, Laura. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action today. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care both for yourself and for others in your church? And don't forget to check out that book, Caring for Clergy. And of course, if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting. Take care.